Hello, you're listening to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast, presented by Brandon Elliott. This show will be going over all aspects of real estate investing and is intended to educate, motivate, and prepare you to take action on your first or next real estate investment. For more information, please visit BrandonElliottInvestments.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome back, everyone, to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Mr. Brandon Elliott. I'm excited today. We have a veteran in the game. We got somebody that is based over in Chicago, been doing this for 35 plus years. Started off with redevelopment back in 91-ish, and then early 90s, and then actually created his own company back in 98. Focusing on self-storage facilities, and he's in seven different states, actually owns a little over 750,000 square feet of storage. The reason we say square feet is because obviously when you have that much square feet, you can actually make more doors, you can lessen it up and whatever makes sense for that location, whether you want to add more because of the supply and demand and need for bigger size for boats or whatever it may be. There's a lot of different options for you. So excited to have you on today, Scott. What's going on? How are you? Yeah, thanks for having me, Brandon. I'm looking forward to this. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, appreciate it. So tell me, anybody out there that doesn't know exactly your situation, who you are, where you're from, do you mind just diving in and giving that 30,000 foot view? Absolutely. Happy to. I'm originally from Chicago, but I grew up here, went and got my undergraduate degree in Ohio at Kenyon College. Then I came back and got my master's degree from Illinois Institute of Technology. And I was fortunate enough that I became a TA for my professor who owned a real estate development, architectural and contracting firm. Wow. And so I was working, my master's thesis was a 400 unit, $100 million project. Yeah. And so I was fortunate enough that he picked mine from the class and we actually were building it. So from seven in the morning till noon, I was working in his office as his TA. Yeah. And then from one to six, I was working on class on his project. And then I'd go home and eat dinner and then do homework from seven until midnight working on his project. Wow. So I did that for a couple of years and then I worked for him when I graduated. How incredible is that to have a mentor at such a important age and then actually start falling in love with it? Is that when you started getting the bug? Well, you know, when I first graduated from college, I was a history major and, you know, I thought I had closed the doors to architecture and real estate. And they came out with this new program that allowed non-undergraduate degrees in architecture to get a master's in it, which was a three and a half year program. Wow. I started a month after I graduated from college. So I literally had a month off. And then dove into it. And the first three months was like a, a trial basis. To, you know, that was the half a year to get into the three and a half year program to make sure that you were really wanting to do it. And, you know, so I, I'd done architecture in high school and then we were doing it that summer and we were drafting from like nine in the morning till five at night, you know, five days a week. And that's where, you know, like, okay, do I really want to do this for the rest of my life? And then that's when we also began talking about what are the different roles of the developer, the architect, the contractor, and, and where the real quote unquote power is in that relationship. And without a developer, you don't have the architect. Without the architect, you don't have a contractor, right? Yeah. And that's when we realized that, you know, there was more to real estate than just being the architect, it was about being the developer. I love it. So how long did you work with the mentor, your your teacher at the time? For six years. For six years. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then- uh, I st- started my own firm in 98. Okay. And we, uh, our first project was a single family residence. We bought a house, tore it down, built a new one and sold it. 
And I had three investors and they got a nice, healthy rate of return on their investment. They said, do it again and don't tell anyone. Yeah. And that's why I figured I had to do it again. And I had to tell everybody. Yeah. <laughs> so many so that, followed after that. I'm sure of it. Got back into multifamily. And then when the crash came, that's when I got into self-storage. Okay. So during the crash, how was that for you? I know everybody kind of went through it differently. Tell me your personal experience. Well, being a history major, I study history, right? And so, yeah. you know, when, when I heard the Fed talking about it and this approaching housing bubble and crashing, I stopped buying. You know, when I seen people buy properties for like 50,000, 60,000, 100,000 over an asking price and, and, you know, just turning, it was like that to me was one of the indicators that was um, the bubble was coming. With, when, with the intention to refi in just a couple months when it goes even higher, right? No, no, they were going to tear down and build new. So oh, okay. that, it wasn't the big short strategy. This yeah. was, you know, buying property. I mean, the most expensive property that we bought for a house was $1.5 million. Okay. And we, we ended up, you know, selling that house for $3.5 million. And that was right at the crash. You know, we, we completed it right, you know, when the crash was happening and we were still able to sell it. So I started unloading properties when the crash came and I was, I was actually chastised by other developers for undercutting the market and selling too low. And I was like, I'm out, you know? And so when the crash came, I was only sitting on two properties. So, you know, we, we were able to sell both those off. Good for you. That's awesome. So a majority of your strategy is to ground up, develop these properties, but then keep as many as you can and sell some along the way. Well, I'm a developer, right? So we always look for where, where I can add the most value to a property. To me, that's the, the equation. So it's not, you know, when we're doing single family homes, we were doing a lot of teardowns and building new. When we were doing mixed use and multifamily, we were like, we tore down a post office and built a new multifamily there. And we tore down a greenhouse and built townhomes there. So we've converted buildings into churches. We've done that for clients. But what we're doing is we're taking underutilized commercial properties and converting them into self-storage, or we're taking self-storage buildings that need expansion. We, we buy those and expand them. And we've also looked at acquiring property and, and building new as well. So we do all three of those things. Okay. I love it. So talk to me about, did you take a pause after you know 2008 burst? No, no, no. I, I, I transitioned our business. Okay. So our design build went predominantly to, instead of spec, it went to client-based. Yeah. And we, we were able to get our clients phenomenal pricing and, and construction because subcontractors were dying for work. I mean, they were yep. just, you know, looking there real eager. And then that's when we began getting into multifamily because all the lending was being pushed to multifamily. We were also doing notes. And then that's when I started researching self-storage. And then eventually we got into self-storage. Mm, I love it. I was going to save this towards the end, but while we're talking about it, you know, I, I know you're a big history guy. Looking at where we're at in history right now at this point, nobody's got that crystal ball, but the things that are taking place right now with the banks the last couple of weeks and then just all the other crazy things while we're in this recession, where are you predicting we land in the next six to 12 months? Well, we all have a crystal ball, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We all got it. We all got our two cents behind it. You know, a year ago, I was honored in Vegas to win an award for leadership in real estate. And nice. at that, that time, I I did a presentation about the in, impending recession. Sure. And I compared it to 1979. And mm. I mean, I went back and looked at it and like the, all the factors. I, I did like 14 different categories of comparing, you know, today to 1979. It was very similar. I think that wow. that recession is very 
I mean, if I asked you, what what would you, were you even born in 1979? No, no, I was a 90s baby. 90s. <laughs> yeah. So you, you didn't experience it, but no. homes were trading for the value of the mortgage rather than the value of the house. Yeah. So if you had a good mortgage with a low interest rate yep. and it was assignable, that was more valuable than the house. For sure. So people would buy the house because of the mortgage and they would assign the mortgage because interest rates were like around 9, 10%. Sure. And so, um, you know, when I was looking at it, it was like, if, if I asked you, if you were to guess what the cost of gas was in 1979 in today's dollars, what would you say it was? In today's dollars? Yeah. I don't know. $7 or less? Yeah, it was two thirty-five. Two thirty-five in today's dollars? Yes. It okay. was like 79 cents back then, and it was yeah. translated to two thirty-five. Sure. You know, we were hitting five and six dollars a gallon, right? Yeah. At least here in Chicago. And so, you know, we were looking at inflation. We were looking at how fast interest rates were going up. We were looking at housing starts, unemployment. It was yeah. all around six million people. Wow. So all these factors are very similar to it. And what what really drove that change was fiscal and monetary policy had to change, right? And so our recession is based upon we've had a huge, tremendous amount of spending. And the only lever that the Fed had to ease inflation was raising the interest rates. Yeah. So like we, I just got a quote from many vendors on a, a new H geothermal system. Sure. We were looking at the prices and the prices went from, you know, $10,000 to $13,000 pre-pandemic and then now $26,000. Yeah. And I'm like, so I, I literally did research on it and I called up and I found out that the actual unit was like $9,500. Yeah. And the subs were charging, you know, call it $16,000 for labor for two days yeah. and profit, right? That is, that is false inflation because all they're doing is just marketing up for that profit margin, doubling it, right? Yeah. And um, usually it's like 20% margin or something like that, right? Yeah. yeah. But, but, but doubling the, the, the price is something. And so to me, as you know, we're seeing that it's a false inflation because when people are saying like, oh, it's because the cost of labor has gone up. Well, if people are really making that much more money, then they're not complaining about $6 a gallon or they're not sure. complaining that the cost of eggs are, is doubled, right? Yeah. So we're seeing that imbalance right there. And as interest rates go up, that false inflation is going to go away because the demand for construction is going to go down and then therefore the price is going to have to correct. So that's where I see what happens in recessionary markets is, you know, there's a, there's a readjusting of the price, price basis. But until that happens, Fed is going to keep the interest rates high sure. because, and then once construction and the economy begins to stall, then they'll begin relaxing it because those are the only two mechanisms they have. And the only other thing that will change is when you study the elections, when there's been a bad economic cycle, usually the president is boost, you know, thrown out. Look at yeah. Jimmy Carter, right? Yep. Reagan won overwhelmingly. And I predicted that Trump would maintain it his two years because we've given every presidency two years, two terms. Two terms, yes. Two terms. Yeah. But, you know, we saw that balance, right? We saw that shift. Yeah. And I'm going to say the same thing. If we're in a, still in a recessionary market with Biden, you know, coming into his election, there will be a change in which will be a difference in fiscal and monetary policy. And yeah. That's, I think we're going to be in a recession for at least until that period of time. So you said it was 77 or 78? 79 is when. 79. When, uh, yeah. Because Reagan off. came in to office in 80. Yeah. And immediately the economy shot up. So what's different from then and, and now, though, I would 
probably predict that credit card debt is a lot higher because there really wasn't much credit cards back then, as well as car debt as well. I mean, is there any similar? I didn't uh, look at that yeah. specifically. I was looking at yeah. GNP. I was looking at sure. inflation, you know, yeah. cost of labor, those sorts of things. Gotcha. Um, I didn't get, you know, the amount of debt. That would be interesting. I, I do believe we have more debt now than what we did then. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's mind blowing to think about. And I'm just kind of curious to see how bad it could be potentially, especially if I think there's about 300 extra banks right now that are on the verge, just like the last four that just had that spill a couple of weeks ago. So I'm curious to see how deep, how long the chaos that it could kind of, the, the ripple effect it could make. Well, the, the, the first bank in California in the San Francisco was, was not over leveraged. I mean, they only had like 50%. But what was happening is because the interest rates drove up so fast. Sure. They're betting on it being lower. Yeah. Yeah. Their, their bond structure, they had, to, they had to do it and they would call for capital. And those two, those two things created the run. It wasn't because they were mismanaged. It was more because of the fact that they didn't process the timing of two things well. Well, yeah, they're betting. They're making their investments and they're at the crafts table basically and they picked the wrong one on that one, I guess. So talk to me about storage units. Give me the playbook of what does the team consist of first? And then I want to talk about finding the land and you know the next steps after that. You mean in our office, what is the team? Yeah. Yeah. Like who are you guys utilizing to be able to, you know, complete a, a a project, a ground up construction for storage units from beginning to end? Well, so I actually have four different companies. So one is Coded Design Build, which facilitates our design and our build of them. So we sure. act as our own GC. Yep. And we have Coda Management Group, which oversees our investment portfolio. And then we have One Stop Self Storage, which manages our self storage portfolio. And then we're, we're just launching a new company. So I can't really get into it now. But um, it's a little too early. Give me a couple of months and then have me back and I'd be having more to talk about it. Yeah. But um, on the development side, it's Coda Management Group. And then we will start a new entity for that location. And then that entity will hire Coda Design Build to do the build. Yep. And then when that's done, then one-stop self-storage begins managing the asset. You're getting peace on each one. So it's good to keep it all in the ebb and flow, all within well, we, the We find the there's greater economies of scale and, and synergy if we control the whole process. I yeah, mean, if you control it all. Yeah. We, we went with a major read on our first three self-storage facilities and uh, they started off well, but then uh, we found out that they were then using our facility to market and then drive you know our tenants to their own, the buildings that they own. They were overinflating our expenses and underrepresenting our, our income. Sure. And our lease up was really slow. And so we had to remove them. And then that's why we created the brand One Stop Self Storage. Wow. Okay. So how are you getting the land, the, the location? We have different brokers that bring it to us and represent them. I mean, right now we're not actively looking because we have enough in our pipeline that we, we've identified for the next couple of years. And so, you know, we're on a little bit of a pause there. So you guys are only relying on brokers that like wholesalers, basically, that find the land that is workable. Not necessarily. I mean, it's been not not necessarily wholesalers, but commercial brokers as well as attorneys. And, you know, we've had other people bring us properties. And so like our one in Cleveland, our lender actually made the introduction. Nice. Okay. And then once you find the location, you know, what's the next step for you guys? Well, the first step is we we evaluate the building we, or the property. So we look at the zoning, we look at the demographics, you know, how much supply and demand is in the neighborhood, what are the rates, what can it be supportive? And, you know, there's great tools and resources that we have that we can track the, the amount of square foot of lockers per capita 
And we know where supply equals demand. So if we're below that, it's a good market to build. If it's over that, then we'll pass on it. So we'll evaluate the property. We'll evaluate the building. We'll evaluate the demographics and put all that into our crystal ball. Yeah. And then we just see if it's good or not. Do you have the metrics uh, roughly for that? I'm curious for anybody listening that wants to kind of take on a project like that or even to be able to bring deals to you. Yeah. So they could look for. Well, the first thing I always tell people, like if they're just beginning in it, is we're looking at a three to five mile radius. You know, so if you're out in the country, 20 minute drive. So, you know, a 20 minute drive in New York City is about one block. But, you know, in the city, I mean, in the country, it could be like, you know, 60 miles, depending on how fast you drive. Right. (laughs) So, but if you put in the address into Google Maps and then you, before that, you put self storage near, you know, and if you see, 20 facilities show up in, you know, in the first couple of radiuses, it's probably oversaturated. Sure. I was at a bigger pocket conference and this woman was talking about how she had this building in Austin and she was going to convert it into self-storage. And I said, have you done a feasibility study? She goes, oh no, I figured I'd do that after I started the process and they can tell me what to do. And I said, well, you should really do that at the beginning. And, you know, the property might be too saturated. She goes, oh, there there aren't any self-storage facilities near us. So well, what's the address? I'll, I'll do a little research for you and I'll, I'll find out for, and I'll just give it to you. So she gave me the address and I went back to my hotel room and put it in. And there was literally 24 facilities within three miles. Wow. And the saturation was 11. Yeah. And where supply equals demand is seven. And I, I told her, I go, whatever you do, do not put self-storage in this building. Wow. You will not get the rates. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful. So well, what does the permit process typically take to be able to... I know each state's different, but from my understanding, it, it can take quite a bit longer than, you know, the average thing that you might be trying to build. It could be a, you know, six to 12 month on, on the low end. I wouldn't say that. I mean, if it's zone, if it's zone four storage, Operate, I mean, yeah. yeah, then it's just a matter of, you know, preparing the plans and, and getting it in. I mean, typically that's, you know, in the permit application process, you know, like 30 to 45 days. You know, it could be, you know, during COVID, it was a little bit longer because of people weren't working in the offices. Yeah. So, I mean, that we saw like six to nine months. But, you know, if you have to go through the zoning process, you know, that, that's something we evaluate in the front end. We've done that. We've done a lot of it. Yeah. But it's not something we dive into unless we know that we, you know, there's no alternative. And so, or we have a good sense of it. So that's where we begin. Yeah, I really wish that California or San Diego specifically would step it up and be a little bit faster turnaround on on permit times. It's unbelievable how slow it is out here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's so a, it's a, again, it's a matter of how motivated they are for development in their community. Yeah. You know, as a recession happens, they're going to be more hungry for development, right? Yeah, well, they say they are, but I, I think politically it may be a little different and might hold us back a little bit. So it's it's a little crazy out here, at least. Talk to me. Is there any states that you totally avoid by all means, or you know, it really just depends. You can you can make any numbers work. Well, we don't say that we're not going to work in states, but we just say there's not a high probability. Yeah, like if you look at California, if you look at Texas, if you look at Florida, the East Coast. Yeah, there's already a high saturation. Yep. So if we find a, a property that doesn't have it, then we would be willing to build there. But more than likely, I mean, like in Florida, we're seeing new construction going in where their saturation is 13, yeah. you know, and which is like double what the national average is. So it's like, to me, that's rather aggressive. Sure. Are you guys investing in anything else or just self-storage? That's in a couple of months I can discuss, okay. discuss cool. that. Yeah. Congrats. That's awesome. 
Okay. And then I assume along the path of getting permits approved and so forth, you start raising capital for some of these deals. What does that look like for you guys? Well, as soon as we're under, under contract, then we, you know, we have the performer and the financial model, then we, we get put it out to our investor pool to see what's interested. Okay. Gotcha. And, you know, with having this much thousands of square feet of storage uh, across the seven states, I'm sure you've raised a, a lot of capital at this point. What, what could somebody anticipate or expect for your most common deal? Well, I think it, it depends whether we're we're buying an existing facility and we're just looking to improve it, or if we're doing development. But ever since I've been in construction, and you know, going back to when I was first started working for my uh, my my first mentor, yeah. you know, if a new construction, if it didn't have a not new construction, but anything with construction that was development, you know, you'd want to have an IRR over twenty percent, you know, because yeah. there's a higher level of risk. And on an existing facility, which already has a cash flow, then, you know, it's lower. So it's, you know, usually in the teens, but that's where we model things out to make sure that, you know, the level of risk is appropriate to the investment. And then you guys are doing cost segregations on them right afterwards uh, for uh, the investors? Before and after. So we'll, we'll do one on existing and then upon completion. So we get two. You can get two. Okay. That's yeah. incredible. I did not know that. Well, a little trick there for you. Okay. So that's before <laughs> before construction in general. Yeah. So upon acquisition, we do a cost seg. And then upon completion of construction, we do a second one. Okay. Awesome. That's very cool. So is that, that's going after the land and materials or? For the existing building, right? So if, okay. there's, an ex, if there's an existing building. Oh uh, yeah. That makes sense. So double dip on it. Yeah. Very right. good. Very savvy. I like that. I wasn't thinking about that, but I really like that. That's good. I can't take credit for that one. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, everything uh, that's been greatly done out there is just copied and done well, again. Which Whoever I came up with the cost segregation law is yeah. the one who created yeah, that Savages. One, right? Thank you all. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So tell me about some things going wrong. You know, the nitty gritty. I feel like we, the, the struggles that we go through, a lot of us can learn the most from. It can be a humbling experience. And then we can ideally with the hopes of, of saving somebody else that's listening to this right now, the time and energy of making the same mistakes that, that you might have. Is there anything that comes to mind? Oh, I mean, besides the whole rap all, sheet of, yeah, we're all human, right? We all have our own pounds of bags of, yes. you know, crap and stuff like that. But, you know, two major ones. I mean, I've had a, a bad partner situation yep. where, you know, we, he felt that he was entitled to a little bit more than what he should have been. Ooh. And as a result of that, you know, it's, it's created a lot of challenges for me, but it also created a growth opportunity because uh, at that point in time, I had to restructure the company and that's when I, impl uh, my systems caught it. Yeah. But I also implemented new systems to grow beyond it. And that's when we really began growing beyond just Chicago and going to, across the country. And I yep. re relied heavily upon my second mentor to, to, to for those systems. Um, and then the second was like, you know, when we're doing a lot of these, we've had a lender. We've had a lender that went under and just stopped funding halfway through construction. And wow. Really? How, yeah. how was that experience? That's probably it heartbreaking. It was hell. Yeah. And, you know, trying to get something refinanced in mid-construction, there's title exposure, there's all liens exposure, all this sort of stuff. So that was one of the more, you know, a couple of the more challenging things that we faced. Well, give me the, if you don't mind, give me the better understanding of how that bank went under. They didn't go under per se. So when I say a lender, you, you heard bank. 
Yeah. So they weren't a traditional bank. What they did is they were, they called themselves a, you know, a, a construction lender. Sure. But what, what they really did is they were borrowing money from a family office and then yep. putting a margin on it. Yep. So when the family office pulled out, then they 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 lost their backing. So they had no yep. ability to fund the draws. That so they were out of California and, you know, we submitted our sixth draw. I think there was 14 overall. And I called them up to, to find out what was going on. And I, I offered to go out. So I flew out to California. And when I walked in the door, they didn't know who I was. That was not a good sign. No. They assigned me to meet with the, the youngest guy who had been in the office for a total of two weeks. Let's go. And, and he <laughs> said to me, well, they're going to vote on what gets funded this week. And I'm like, what do you mean by that? Yeah. And he goes, that's what they told me. We're going to have a vote to see what gets funded. I'm like, we have a construction agreement. And it says, if I meet these requirements, including the inspection, the draws and all this sort of stuff and invoices and the inspecting architect signs off on it, it gets funded. It's been over two weeks. Why isn't this funded? And he said, that's all I can tell you. I don't know. I've only been here two weeks. And they never funded another dollar on our project again. And wow. so it took us like nine months to get it refinanced. Did it? Yeah. Did you have to find other resources of uh, like private funding or something that to be Fortunately, able to Fortunately, we, we found a, a regional bank that helped us out. Wow. Okay, good. So you were able to complete the project and then be able to complete the refi after? No, we, or the refi you had, was, to, get we, we had refi to get the refi first. in order to do the construction. So we funded a tremendous amount of, of the money ourselves, but then we had to you know get that restructured, organized. Wow. I'm sorry to hear that, man. That sounds like a tough one for sure, but definitely a, a, a powerful, just strong position to, to learn from. Yeah. You know? The yeah. irony is they, they claimed that we were in default. My God. <laughs> it was the only way that they could do to protect themselves. Of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but it's savage. It's just so savage, right? Uh, yeah. That's so sad. Wow. Yeah. You threw me off with that one. I wasn't expecting that. I, I had a good question afterwards. I swear I did. And, and you just threw me off with this one. Shock right here. You asked a big question. You got to. Yeah. It's just, it, it's, it's sad though. You know, when you go to these banks or, you know, the, these private companies that, you know, claim to be able to help you and, and you're relying on, you're re relying on them at such a heavy level to be able to complete your project. You're mid, you're not even fully midway through the project. No, we, and we were at rough. So we, we had not finished rough. Yeah. Come on. That's a, that's a tough spot to be in. So for the overall numbers on that project, how did, how did you guys turn out towards the end? Well, we're still in it. We're in the lease up stage right now. So, yeah. you know, we're, we're logging along. Was this during COVID or, or after? No, it was before. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, the only reason why we found out what happened is that we were, we were asked to present our company at a family office event. And we were talking with a family office and like, we were showing them our portfolio and they're like, oh yeah, we know that one. We told them we weren't going to do it. And that's when I discovered what the background was behind it. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's tough. Anything else that you would give to the listeners that, that you think would be beneficial for them? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Watch the lenders, boys and girls. <laughs> Be careful yeah. with, with who you're getting the money from, for sure. Well, we, we always ask those questions. You know, we ask yeah. our brokers now, like, how many times have you worked with these guys? What's your experience with them? Yep. Have you had good experiences? What's their, how much are they trying to renegotiate at the table at the final closing, right? You know, yeah. when, you get, when you get it, you know, it's, it's a negotiation process all the way through. Yep. And so, you know, we want to know, like, have the brokers had good experience with them and are they trading for what they say or are they, you know, 
you know, trying to hook you with a big deposit fee so that you can't walk. Yeah. Those are all the types of things we look for. How long are these projects typically taking you guys? Well, we plan three to five years between construction and lease up and all that. Okay. So three to five years for, you know, ground up construction, beginning to end, as well as getting all, um, you know, seasoned and leased out. Right. stabilized. Mm-hmm. So after you stabilize it, are, are you guys doing the refinance at that point typically? Yeah, that's one of the options well that we look to do. You know, okay. and we're also looking to develop this portfolio to package it all nicely to a REIT and, and sell okay. it off to a REIT. So you guys typically always sell them to REITs? Well, I'm a developer first and foremost, right? So everything's for sale. My wife makes sure I exclude my kids, but you know, smart. everything's for sale. Smart woman. Keep her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's good. Okay. So everything's got a number to it. At the end of the day, where do you like to typically exit? And is it within that you know, five-year range or, or are you okay with hanging on to it for a few more years? I'm okay with it. I mean, if it's cash flowing, then, you know, we're fine with that. But you know, it has to be right for both us and our investors. So we align ourselves with that. So they're not thinking that we're just you know, holding on for a management fee and, and not yeah. liquidating the assets. So that's not ever our goal. And we tell them up front that, you know, we're looking to develop this portfolio and to, to sell the portfolio and yeah. get greater cap compression. So that it's a big part of our plan right there. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's powerful. So what are the next steps for you guys? Couple months. Couple months. Yeah, couple months. <laughs> is, is life changing in a couple months? I want to know about it. I feel like there's so much, uh, so much being held back right now. I want to know. I'm sorry, I, I, I teased you that way, but yeah, yeah. I, I can't, we can't get into it. Well, as far as the business in general, are you guys totally, is that a transition thing or are you guys? No, so I'll give you a little bit of the mindset behind what we were yeah. doing. When we were presented with this opportunity, we were approached about it. And my partner said to me, he said, well, if it's good for you, then you need to do it. And I said, yeah. whoa, whoa, whoa. It's, that's not the way I'm looking at it. It's got to be good for us. And when I say us, not just you, it's our company. Is it going to overall benefit something? So my second mentor moved here from Lebanon, 16 years old, like a couple hundred bucks in his wallet. And now he's the president of a university. He owns Great Harvest Bread. He owns Lazy Boy. He's on the board of BB&T Bank. You know, and he's turned himself into, you know, a very successful man. He's won the Horrell or, or Algier Award. I'm saying it wrong. So I apologize. Horatio Algier Award for Distinguished Americans. And so, which is like Buzz Aldrin, Oprah, Bill Gates, you know, wow. he's in that, he's in that club, right? Yeah. He's in that category. I like yeah. that. And so, you know, his point was always position things to be sold, Yep. but he goes, the reason why I get into these other ventures is to build congruency around them, intentional mm-hmm. congruency. And so I said, if we're going to be doing this next venture, it's to enhance what we're doing now. And a lot of people don't get that. We were working on a project and together with someone else and they became upset because I was talking about the, the other venture because I, I saw it as a way, as a, you know, increasing attraction for, for the overall product. And uh, they got upset with me because I was promoting one versus the other. And I was like, you don't get it. They weren't going to move forward with, with just that proposal. They were asking us, what else were we working on? Yeah. And if I threw that out there, it may have attracted them to work with us. Correct. And, you know, they, they weren't willing to see that. So that's the only reason why we're going into this next venture is because it, it enhances what we're doing here. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah, there's so many different plays to structure deals. And if you can make it congruent with other entities, other businesses that you're running and kind of have it more all in-house that all circle into each other, it's a no-brainer. 
Cool. Well, I appreciate it greatly. There's tons of value in this. I know I took a, a ton of notes myself. Is there anything that you would tell somebody that is interested in getting started in self-storage that, that you wish you would have known when you were first getting you know, started in the game? Well, you know, when I first got in the game, I was a developer, yeah. right? I, I wasn't a self-storage guy. Yeah. I mean, I see it as, I saw it as apartments without toilets. Yeah, like yeah. If, I, if I can do a $100 million apartment or condo deal, I can do a, a $10 million self-storage facility. Yep. And so that part was easy. But I, what I didn't realize is how much of a retail business it is. And so that's what we've really been focusing on the last couple of years is developing that retail component of it. And so if you're if you are interested and you, you feel you have a good site, that might be it. You know, first plug it in, see if it meets that first criteria that I suggest. And if you want to reach out to us, I, I'm happy to, if you mention the show, I'm happy to give your listeners a, a deal analyzer, a self-storage deal analyzer, plus a feasibility study that we retained for one of our locations. So that, that way can, they can see what goes into it and how they how to do it. And uh, it's like a 175 page document. It, yeah. If you're having trouble sleeping, it might help with that. Yeah. It's aggressive. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's very insightful, not just for that location, but the overall general market of self-storage. Yeah. And so, in, you know, we're, the industry is too small. We're not going to steal someone's, you know, property, but if they want to review it with us, happy to review it. If you want me to sign a non-disclosure? Happy to do that. But I, you know, we'll give them an hour of our time and say whether or not we would do it. Yeah. I appreciate that. Giving it to the, to the audience. Something I really love about, I mean, there's so many amazing things that I personally love about self-storage. Just the the liability is a heck of a lot less. The expenses are so next to nothing. And when somebody stops paying, depends on which state, but it's just so quick to actually be able to cut locks, auction it off and re-rent it pretty quick. Alongside with, you can constantly every so often, every few months or so, constantly just keep on raising rents until you find that, you know, that 94, 96% occupancy range, right? And so it's pretty incredible to start seeing what somebody else would really be comfortable with. And overall, you know, people get very lazy. You set it and forget it to a certain degree. You, you put it on auto pay and then you forget about it. Right. And the the efforts and energy to actually go, you, you can see the monthly bill of 130 bucks, 150 bucks per month. And you're like, God, I, like, I don't want to pay that. But at the same time, I don't want to go deal with the headache of removing that and finding somewhere else for it. So people just get comfortable with it. So it, it's pretty incredible the upside of all the the benefits of what you could do. And, and in a recession, I just truly believe that there's just great opportunity with it. I really do. So, and multifamily, I feel like could potentially be the next thing that could get hit a little bit. That That's my, my two cents behind it. And I'm kind of curious what that would do for, for storage units even furthermore. Well, anytime someone's going under uh, a challenging time, storage comes into play, right? I mean, it is. We, deal, we deal with the four major ones, but you know, I went back and looked at the four recessions, last four recessions, yep, including the pandemic, which wasn't technically one, but we did have a big drop. Yep. In each of those, self-storage occupancy went down slightly and then rebounded aggressively. Aggressively, and, yeah. And so, um, you know, that's why I deemed it re- recessionary resistant, yep. not proof. And, that's true. Um, so, you know, I, I believe that there will there'll be opportunities. I mean, I think that we are saw very low cap compressions. So right now, the, the problem with 
the valuation of multifamily is that you know the cap rates are below the interest rates, yeah. which is an inverted yield, which is never a good thing, which is not sustainable. So no. there will be some corrections there. You know, I sold off mine probably a little bit too early because I thought we were at the top of the market and it it went up, but I was on the front side, not on the back side. That's and, good. Um, the other side of it is, I think it depends on what the population is in those marketplaces. You know, we've been studying that. We've been studying to see where markets are, where population is, and where there's housing shortages. I mean, since the last crash, there's been a huge drought of housing starts. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why is people have, there's not enough new housing to move into, which then puts more pressure on the rental market, which then raises the rates. And which is what's led to the high cap rate or the lowering of the cap rates. Mm. And, you know, until that balance gets laid out, we're still going to have this housing shortage. Yeah, that's good. Well, Scott, I, I appreciate your time greatly today. Anything that myself or the listeners could do to give back to you? Just if they want to reach out and they want to see, you know, what they have, we're happy to help them. So, cool. you know, they can reach us at info at Coda MG, that's marygeorge.com, info at Coda, C-O-D-A-M-G.com. Awesome. Appreciate you. You guys heard it first here. Make sure you reach out to Scott. Got an incredible wealth of knowledge and been doing it for 35 plus years. So definitely reach out to him with any of your development or storage unit needs and questions. Uh, He'll definitely point you in the right direction. And also, if you want to get a hold of me, then you can do so on Instagram and as Brandon Elliott Investments, otherwise facebook.com forward slash Brandon Elliott Investor. And then if you're looking to get more education on credit, and if you are a business owner looking to get up to $500,000 every six months at 0% interest, then you can check out creditcounselelite.com. That's www.creditcounselelite.com where we can teach you how to fix credit quickly, how to be able to boost up your score, get to the 800 club in 30 days or less, and then be able to do a mass apply, get 10 to 40 plus credit cards at once, travel hack and purchase properties with credit. We can teach you how to do so and do it in a successful fashion with financial literacy, literally flipping the script on the bank. So check out creditcounselelite.com. And as always, if you have not already, make sure that you hit the subscribe button to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast. I don't know what you're waiting for. Do that right now. Hit that five-star review. Love all the feedback and the reviews that have been coming in. You guys are amazing. So keep it up. Appreciate you guys greatly. Share this out. Sharing is caring. Tag somebody in this that needs to see it. And we will see you next Monday on the next episode. Till next time, guys. God bless. This has been another episode of Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast. Brought to you by Brandon Elliott. For more information, please visit BrandonElliottInvestments.com. Also, please don't forget to like, share, and leave a comment below. Thanks again for joining. Until next time, God bless.